chapter 10, and we'll be uh, looking at a handful of verses in the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel. I really, really, really was tempted to do one more week on 1 Corinthians 13, and I think I could have pulled it off, but I wasn't about to put that on Facebook. So Mark 10 is where we will be today. And as you arrive there, let me ask you, if you would, to close your eyes, bow your heads, open your hearts as we ask God to be a part of our time in his word today. Lord Jesus, we uh, have come into your house. This is uh, a place, this is a ground that you have made holy by the presence of your Holy Spirit. You are here. You are not just an idea. You are not just a concept. uh, But you are a person who is here with us. That is a gift of grace. Lord, we stand here on this holy ground because of that grace. By that same grace, we ask that you would continue the work to transform us into the kind of people that you long for us to be, that you know we are becoming, in that in some ways today we can only see by faith. Lord, do that work in us so that our worship grows, so that our joy is deeper, so that our obedience is more complete. Lord, our prayer is that when the world sees who we are, that they would see you. Do that in this time of worship, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been working together uh, in this little series uh, that we're calling Apprenticeship, thinking about what does it mean to become uh, disciples of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Uh, Dallas Willard uh, famously made a distinction uh, between uh, making good church members on the one hand and then making disciples of Jesus on the other hand. And he said that many, many, many churches are good at making good church members, people who know how to check all the boxes uh, to be good church participants, uh, to fit into the particular church culture uh, in their congregation. Uh, and we, do, we, we can do that. Uh, we know how to make good church members. And, uh, and that's one, one avenue. And he said, ultimately, that work is, um, is anemic. That, that work is, is shadowy and um, uh, uh, ineffective. He said, what, what we desperately need is to shift from thinking about how do we make good church members who know how to participate in church programs, how do we, how do we make uh, disciples of Jesus, how we make men and women who are apprenticing their lives, patterning their lives after the life that Jesus lived. And so that's the invitation that we have today, is how, does it, how do we, as a, not individuals only, but as individuals and as a community, how do we pattern our lives uh, after the life of Jesus? Uh, in other words, uh, the question we're asking is not uh, how is it that you can become a good church member and make a congregation successful, but we're asking the question how is it that together uh, as a congregation we can make each one of us successful as an apprentice of Jesus. And so uh, we've been talking about this idea of leaning into and growing in our capacity to love God, uh, not just saying that we love God, not just affirming that loving God is a good idea, but actually, measurably, noticeably, 
in life-changing ways, saying that my love for God is deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and that there's a that there's a marked um, uh, distinction between how much I used to love God and how much I love God uh, now. Uh, so growing in our love for God, growing in our capacity to love our neighbor, uh, not just to love neighbors who are neat and tidy, but to love neighbors who are messy and challenging and painful and disruptive and costly. Growing a capacity to stand with people who are different than we are, uh, who see the world differently than we do, uh, who long for different things than we long for, and nevertheless showing up and demonstrating the consistency and the, the persevering love of Jesus in that person's life. How do we grow in our capacity to do that? And today we're asking the question, how do we grow in our capacity to lead change, uh, to be change agents uh, in our world? Uh, the invitation that we have as followers of Jesus is to pray the prayer uh, that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that, sometimes I like to make that very specific. Uh, Lord, would your kingdom come uh, on Sylvan Lane the way that your kingdom is in heaven? Uh, would your kingdom come at Dow High School the way that your kingdom is in heaven? Would your kingdom come at the hospital the way that your kingdom is in heaven? What would it look like for the kingdom of God to come in the place where you spend the majority of your time? And then what would it look like? What would it take for you to be an agent that brings that about? That's the conversation that we want to have today as we think about leading change. And what we uh, see here in Mark 10, uh, Jesus actually is talking about uh, the role of leadership and the nature of leadership. So Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, uh, we want you to do us a favor. What is it? Uh, he asked. Uh, in your glory, see, they butter him up a little bit, right? In your glorious kingdom, right? We know you're fantastic. And what we want is to sit in places of honor next to you, they said, one at your right and the other at your left. Uh, they're asking for privilege, they're asking for position, they're asking for authority. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of sorrow that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? And they said, oh, yes, of course we are. We're able. And Jesus said, hmm, you will indeed drink from my cup. And you will be baptized with my baptism. But I have no right to say who will sit on the thrones next to mine. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. And when the other ten disciples discovered what James and John had asked, they were indignant. And so Jesus called them all together and said, we need to have a meeting about this. Here's a lesson about leadership. You know that in this world, kings are tyrants. And officials lord it over the people beneath them. But among you, it should be quite different. It won't be like that. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. 
and we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So this whole uh, invitation from Jesus to come and follow him is not just simply an invitation to be saved so that we can be happy and have a better life. Uh, The invitation from Jesus is not just an invitation that says, if you come uh, to the cross, uh, you can be saved and you can have a happier life. And someday, if you hang on, you can go to heaven when you die. Uh, Jesus is heading to the cross here. He is uh, in several conversations. This is the third conversation where Jesus is beginning to define what it is that will happen on the cross. And in none of these places does Jesus ever, ever say, Uh, What I'm doing is I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer horribly, I'm going to be a ransom, and I'm going to do all of those things so that you can be happy, so that you can have comfort, so that you can live a life of ease and convenience, and so that someday at the end of that wonderful life of ease and convenience, you can go to heaven when you die. Jesus never, ever, ever talks about the cross that way. Uh, He says, rather, that what the cross is doing, uh, what his death will do, is that he will create a dynamic community which will have a new attitude towards the world and a new attitude in the world, an attitude of mission and service in the world. So, for example, in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, there's a verse that sort of captures this uh, idea from this passage. And this is what we read, that Jesus gave himself for us to ransom us. There's the ransoming idea, to ransom us, from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. In other words, he ransomed us. The cross ransoms you to be a people, to be a community who are eager to do what is good. So when we're talking about leading change, when we talk about servant leadership, when we're talking about leading change, we're talking about becoming the sort of people who are able and and eager to enact the good that God intends. In other words, I'm not just saved from sin, but I'm saved to become a part of this community that Jesus is forming through and around and via the cross that is capable of and eager to enact God's good in the world, to become the answer to the prayer your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So how does that happen? How do we begin to become a people who can enact God's good, the good that God intends? Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to establish this new dynamic community that goes out into the world with an entirely different mindset than the mindset of leadership that we normally see around us in our culture. Uh, It's a completely different mindset than we've had before. He says, "What, what you will become is you'll become a servant. Uh, you'll be characterized by an attitude and a heart of servanthood. Right? That's what he says. He says, whoever will be greatest among you has to become your servant. Whoever wants to be first has to be willing to become last. So in Mark 10, Jesus is specifically addressing the topic of leadership. Uh, one of the few places he actually says leadership uh, and, and then teaches specifically on the topic of leadership. And what he says about leadership is uh, you will lead by serving. You will leave, lead with and through a heart and an attitude and a presence, the posture of a servant. So we're servants. For a Christian to say, and I, and I hear this all the time, all the time, 
I'm not a leader. I'm not a leader. I'm not a leader. Don't ask me to lead. I'm not a leader. I don't want to lead. I don't want the spotlight. And listen, 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 listen. You'll never be asked here to be a leader who seeks the spotlight. You're never going to be asked to be a leader in the spotlight. You're never going to be asked to be a leader uh, in, in, the, in the sense of uh, uh, garnering praise and attention for yourself. Anybody who says, I want, I'm not going to be a leader, I don't want the spotlight, I'm not a leader, I don't want the attention, I'm not a leader. Anybody who says that, anybody who says that hasn't ever read this text. Because Jesus never, ever, ever calls us to be leaders who seek the spotlight, who stand on and, and, and gain praise and attention. He says, your leadership is by serving. For me to say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not a leader, is the same thing as saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not called to serve. Because my leadership is enacted through a heart and an attitude and an action of serving. We're all called to serve. We're all called to be people who are eager to do God's good in the world. So Jesus comes to us and he says, uh, this is how you become a servant leader. This is what that looks like. He says, I've ransomed you. And because I've ransomed you, uh, you're in a different relationship with yourself and with the world and with me. I've ransomed you and I've set you into a different set of relationships, different from any other relationship that you've ever had, a new position. You have a new position uh, in life. And because you have that new position, because that's what the cross does, because you have that new position, uh, you have a new calling. And your calling is to live as a servant. So look again at verse 45. In a few weeks, uh, uh, I'm really excited about, uh, we have a few series coming up this year. I'm really excited. I've been, I'm more excited about some of these series coming up than I've been about series for a long, long time. This is going to be a really fun year. Uh, we have a whole series coming up talking about all kinds of different uh, angles on the cross. What, is, what are the things that the cross brings to us? Uh, so we're going to do a whole series on the meaning of the cross. But here, in Jesus' own words, we get an idea of how Jesus is thinking about what his cross is going to do. And what he says is, uh, it will be through the cross that you're going to be redeemed. Uh, you'll be redeemed. Sometimes here, it's it's, uh, the word is, is translated ransomed. And whether it's ransomed or redeemed, there's the same Greek word that lies behind it. And the Greek word is luo, and it means to loosen. So if you are loose, you know, if you ever gotten a knot in your shoestrings and you can't get it undone and you have to luo the knot in your shoestrings, you have to to loosen that knot, get that knot to break before you can untie it. That's what luoing is. It's releasing, it's setting free something that was previously locked up. And very specifically, the idea comes to be attached to the idea of setting somebody free who is a prisoner, somebody who is a, a captive. And if you set a captive free, if you break somebody out of prison, you're luoing that person, you're redeeming or ransoming that person. And many times that ransom uh, is something that is paid. There's a cost associated with untying the binds that keep a prisoner in place. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to do a ransom. You're, I'm going to untie you. And Jesus would only ever say, I need to untie you. I need to set you free if he thought that you were bound. Uh, Jesus would only say, I need to untie you. I need to set you free because, uh, because when I look at you, what I see is that you are in a bondage. You're captive to something. I want, I want us to hear that, that we're captives, that we're in a bondage. 
Uh, and that's a hard thing for us to hear. There are some people uh, who it's very easy to say, I realize that I'm not very happy. I realize that I'm not always perfect. I realize that I'm human. I don't always measure up. I don't always believe everything that you believe. Uh, it's easy for us to say those kinds of things. But people don't say, um, I'm in bondage. People will say instead, I'm free. They'll say, I'm free. I'm actually I'm living my life the way that I want to live my life. I have a ton of freedom. And for me to uh, shackle myself to the doctrines of the church, that would feel like bondage. Or for me to live under uh, the ethics and norms of the Christian world, that would be bondage. But I want to live free. I want to be free to do me. I want to live my life my way. So we don't think of ourselves in bondage. But Jesus comes and says, actually, uh, I have to ransom you because you're deeply in bondage. I have to set you free. The Bible comes and says that no one is more of a prisoner than the one who doesn't even know that he or she is a prisoner. Uh, in other words, uh, somebody who doesn't know that they're a prisoner is the most complete prisoner of all. So imagine for a minute that uh, somebody comes along and, and binds you, right? They tie your hands, they, they bind your feet, and you can't move. And you know uh, that you're bound, and so you're struggling against the ropes, right? You're trying to get yourself free, and, you're, and you know that there's a bondage. But now, for, now imagine that that person knocks you over the head first, knocks you out cold, right? Now you're not even aware of the fact that you're bound. And so you're not even struggling against your bondage. The Bible says, uh, if you don't know that you're a prisoner, that's the time that your imprisonment is most complete. Uh, regardless of how you think or how you feel or what you believe, you're in bondage. You're a prisoner. Right? It's, it's, uh, it's one thing to know that you're in bondage, but it's another thing to not even know it. And so Jesus says, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to set you free, whether you know you're a prisoner or not. Whether you realize that you're in bondage or not. So what are, the, what are your captors? What are the bondages that Jesus is untying and wooing for us? Well, you can name a few of them briefly. One is, the Bible says that because of sin, we are captives to self. That we are all slaves to self, sort of a capital S, self. We serve self. Uh, we're slaves to self, uh, not in the sense of doing appropriate self-care, not in the sense of having a, 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 an appropriate and healthy sense of self-confidence, but we're slaves to self in the sense of 2 Timothy 3, uh, where Paul says that we are lovers of self, that we bend the knee to self. Uh, it's, a, it's a bondage to self, where self is at the very center of our thoughts and of our imagination, of our desires, of our hopes. What does that bondage look like? If you're always looking at yourself, right? If yourself uh, is always the one in the middle, uh, then you're always going to be hurt. Yourself is very sensitive. You're always comparing yourself with other people. And that's, and that's what's happening in this text, right? That's what's happening with the disciples who come and say, we want to have the best seats. We want to have the authority. We want to be elevated above our peers, right? They're, they're self-serving there's a bondage to self that they're, that they're asserting and putting on display. And then the other disciples who come along and they are indignant about that. Uh, their self is wounded that uh, some of their friends would think that they're better than they are, that they would compare them as uh, less worthy of the seats of honor. You're always hurt. You're always comparing yourself with other people. You're always 
feeling like you're being shunned or left out or, or uh, not treated appropriately. You're always on the outside. Those are the marks of bondage to self. And what ends up happening is that all of our life energy, all of our attention, all of our emotion is, is, is given over to how do I just protect myself? How do I serve myself? That, that, that fragile being that I've just put right at the middle of my life. That's a bondage. Um, the Bible also says that uh, sin creates for us a bondage to idols. Now, most of us don't have little figurines in our house that we come and, you know, give meat to or bow down to. or right. We don't have idols in the sense of Babylonian idols. But uh, the, the, the scriptures say that uh, if Jesus is not your master, if Jesus is not your Lord, then something else will be. And whatever that something else is, is an idol. Whatever in your life displaces Jesus as the main thing, is an idol. Something else will be there that you put your hope in. Something else will be there that you put your heart into, that, that, that defines your longing and your dreams. And, and it's that thing that says, ah, if I don't have that, if I don't have that, my life is ruined. If that goes away, I'm undone. Whatever that thing is that displaces Jesus and becomes that, that place of prominence in my life, it's my job, it's my money, it's my power, it's my authority, it's my relationships, it's my children, it's my spouse. Whatever that thing is, ah, if I don't have that, I'm undone. It's an idol. And it becomes a bondage. Anything that makes me content and satisfied and fulfilled besides God is an idol. You say, well, that doesn't feel like a bondage because I like that thing. That thing is important to me. That thing brings me joy. That thing brings me satisfaction. It doesn't feel like a bondage. Here's why it's a bondage. Because if I say, there's this thing, there's this relationship, there's this person, there's this, this, this uh, sum in the bank account, there's this, this uh, reputation, there's this, uh, if I, and if I don't have that, I'm undone. And if that goes away, I am no longer me. And here's what happens. There's nothing outside of God himself that doesn't ultimately go away. There's nothing outside of God himself that doesn't fade, that doesn't fall apart, that doesn't fail. So I'm saying all of my hope, all of my identity, everything that I am is given over to this thing that can't last, that will fail me. And I've already said ahead of time that if that fails, I'm undone. That's a bondage. It's a horrible bondage. It's a horrible place to be. And then finally, there is a, a third bondage that we all share. And that is, uh, the, the New Testament is really clear that we have a bondage to the law. We have a bondage to the law. What does that mean? It means that uh, in some deep way, the law is a reflection of God's character. The law reflects who God is. And the scriptures say that you also are a reflection of who God is, that you are also made in God's image. Uh, you are made to be a reflection of God. So you reflect God. The law reflects God. There's a part of the law, therefore, that is just deep within human beings. Sometimes we call it our conscience. There, uh, we know what is right. We know what is fair. We know what is good. And we know that we violate that standard. So, for example, take a, a very uh, simple 
uh, example of that standard that we know we violate. There's this, uh, we call it, right, the, uh, the golden rule, treat other people the way that you want to be treated. And if you take that as your standard, here's a really frightening exercise that you can do. At the end of the day, stand in front of your mirror and say, have I lived up to that rule? Have I lived up to that law? Have I treated everybody? Have I treated everybody? Uh, everybody that I meet, have I, have I taken on their needs with all of the joy and the speed and the energy and the creativity uh, with which I would want my own needs to be met? You ask yourself that, and you realize that you fall short. Uh, that, that we don't treat other people the way that we want to be treated. To be under the law, to be a captive to the law, to be in bondage to the law, means that we know we're guilty of that. We know that we live in hypocrisy. We all break the law. And we all feel guilt before God because of it. Some sense that we know that we haven't measured up. We're always behind. We're always trying to catch up. You see that in the disciples when, when, they, when they still feel like under, the, under this bondage of the law, they're still trying to say, how do we, how do we look good in front of Jesus? How do, we, how do we prove ourselves to God? And so, and so Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what it means to be at my left hand and my right hand. In just a few chapters from here, there's a thief on the left and a thief on the right. To take the positions of honor at the left and the right of Jesus is to take a position on the cross. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're, what you're signing up for. And, and they say, oh, yeah, 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 we do, we do, we're on, we're on board. And they're making promises and assertions and they're trying to make themselves look good in front of Jesus. That's bondage to the law. How do I earn God's favor? How do I earn God's pleasure? We know that we're always behind. So, so this is a sermon about leadership. You say you haven't said leadership since the very beginning. What does this have to do with leadership? This is what happens. When I'm in bondage to self, when I'm in bondage to idols, when I'm in bondage to the law, what does my leadership look like? Jesus says, look out there. If you want to see a leader in bondage, uh, what, what you see is, a tyrant, a bully, somebody who lords their authority and their power over others. If you want to see somebody who is not leading uh, from this position of being ransomed, uh, from a not, not leading from a place of knowing that they belong to me, um, but still deep in their bondage, uh, it's, it's the tyrant, it's the bully, it's the one who lords authority over others. That's broken and corrupt bondage leadership. And Jesus says, that's not how it will be with you. That's not the leadership that you aspire to. That's not the way that you enact the good that I intend in the world. Uh, The way that you do that is that, first of all, you let me set you free from your bondage. You have to be set free from your bondage before you can do any other kind of leadership besides the the tyrannical leadership. You have to do a different leadership. And that means that some of us are going to have to take on a different way of approaching Jesus. There's a a challenge, I believe, in this idea of we can be good church members but don't have to be good disciples. And uh, we, we believe what it means to be a good church member, what it means to be a Christian is that I just really try hard to be good. 
And I spend my life trying really, really hard to be a good person. And I know that uh, it will be hard. Uh, and, la- and, and after a while, the energy and the effort of trying to be a good person, uh, I realize that it's, it's more than I can keep up. And I start to fall behind and I start to get short with some people and I start to make some mistakes. And uh, I, you know, I swear at a driver on the road and, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm you know, behind on uh, my obligations. And so what do I do? So I show up before God and I say, God, I know somehow you died for me and because of that I'm forgiven. And so I just ask you to forgive me for those places that I've fallen short and I feel better now. Uh, I go to church, I pray, I take communion, I listen to a sermon, I feel like I've gotten cleaned up. And now I go back and I try really, really hard again. And Jesus is saying that's not the way to get set free. That's not what it means to be ransomed. Uh, What it means to be ransomed, he says is there is a cup that you can't drink. And there's a baptism that you cannot stand. If you were to drink this cup and take this baptism, it would annihilate you. And so Jesus says, I will drink the cup. And I will take the baptism. I'll drink it. I'll take it. And when I do that, because of the depth of what I'm going to do, because of what I'm willing to take on, you're going to be set free. You're going to be released from all of your bondages. So you're going to be set free from that. I'll make you a different person. So what begins to happen? When I get that into my bones, when I taste that freedom that only Jesus can make possible, uh, the consistory this past year read a book on prayer by Timothy Keller. And uh, in that book, Keller uses an illustration about God's goodness uh, that he draws from St. Augustine. And he says this, he says, um, Augustine's uh, illustration is, you know, uh, there are different ways that you can know that honey is sweet, right? Uh, I could sit here and say, I've never, I don't know if honey is sweet or not. And I'm just going to line up uh, all of your testimonies and you're all going to come up and say, it's sweet. Trust me, honey is sweet. Yes, it's sweet. I like honey. It's really sweet. Even my kids who don't like anything like honey because you're going to have all kinds of testimonies that tell me that honey is sweet. I can go and look at the chemistry and, and understand that uh, the chemistry says that the way it should interact with my taste buds is that it will taste sweet to me. There's all kinds of ways that I can know honey is sweet. And then Augustine says, or I could taste the honey. And Jesus is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink the cup. I'm going to drink this bitter cup. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink this wretched cup. And it will kill me. And you can taste the honey. You get the goodness of God. And that does three things. It puts you in a different relationship with yourself. It puts you in a different relationship with yourself. You no longer have to work to to build yourself up, to protect yourself, to save yourself. You no longer are in uh, in bondage to yourself. Uh, Because of what happens uh, in that ransom, God says, I'm going to give you more honor than you would ever get in a hundred lifetimes. I'm going to give you all the honor that you could ever, ever want as a human being. 
Think about Jesus and his father look at you and they say that cup is worth it to get you. That baptism is worth it to get you. Gives you more honor, more self than you could ever get for yourself in a hundred lifetimes. And he, and he breaks our relationship with the world. He says, I'm going to give you something that nobody will ever take away with, from you. Something that will never fail. Something that will never corrode. Something that will never go away. You put this in the middle of your life. You hope on this. You trust in this. You long for this. And you'll never, ever be let down. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. The cost is too high for that to ever happen. He sets you free from the law puts you in a different relationship with the law. He says, there's nothing that you can ever do that will deserve to take my place. There's nothing that you can ever do that will cause me to reject you. There's there's no more condemnation. All of the condemnation, all of the wrath of God is contained in that cup, and it's all poured out on Jesus. There's nothing left for you. And so you can know I can fail, I can fall short, I cannot do it right. And even then, hear this. There is no condemnation. There is no shame. There's nothing, be, there's nothing that changes in your status before God. I'm changed. I'm put into all these different relationships. And what does that make me? Jesus says, it will make you a servant. It will make you a servant who is eager to do God's good. It will make you a servant who is eager to enact the goodness of God in the world. It will make you a servant who longs to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When you are no longer in bondage to self, no longer protecting self, no longer using people to build up self, no longer putting down my 10 friends so I can get the best seats, then then I'm free to serve. When I no longer have to hold on to my idol, when I no longer have to accumulate the things that prop me up and make me feel safe and make me feel good, when I no longer have to hold on to my idols, then what? Then I'm free to be deeply sacrificial. I'm free to give it all. There's nothing I have to hold on to. I can serve with everything. When I know that there's no energy left for me to please God, nothing that I can do to earn my favor with God, I'm set free from my bondage to the law. I turn that and serve. Become a person who then gives generously back in gratitude to the work that God has done in my life. Jesus does an interesting little turn in this text. He says, uh, first of all, no, you'll never drink this cup. You can't drink this cup. You can't take this baptism. And then he turns and he says, ah, but you will drink this cup and you will take this baptism. So which is it? And here's what's happening. Jesus is saying, if if you know that I've drink that I've taken this big cup, if you know that I've taken the big cup, uh, then when the little cup comes to you, when the little cup of your suffering comes, you'll be able to take it. 
Uh, if you know that I've taken the big baptism, when you know that I've stood and taken the full brunt of that baptism, then when the little baptism of suffering comes to you, you can take it. You can, you can taste it. You don't have to take the full suffering. You don't have to take the full cup, but you take the cup that comes. If you let me love you, if you receive my love, then inevitably you're going to love more deeply. If you let me serve you, if you let me die for you, if you let me drink the cup for you, then inevitably you will serve more deeply. But there is a cost. There is pain. There is a cup. And Jesus says, it's only, only, only through me that you become the men and women who can take that. It's through the cross that Jesus says, not only do I save you from your sins, but I set you free. And I send you into the world as a community, as a people, as a body, who is able to enact the goodness of God. So each week we've been finishing up our message in this series by talking about how do we do this here? How do we not just build good church members here who know how to do the right programs and show up whenever the doors are unlocked, volunteer for things? How do we not just do good church members and thank you for doing all of those things, but how do we actually say we're about being disciples, we're apprentices of Jesus? And uh, we've talked about loving God, we've talked about loving neighbor, today we're talking about leading change in each one of those centerpieces as a couple of different activities that are, that are connected to it. One is an internal activity and the other is an outward-facing activity. So uh, we grow in loving God uh, through worship as we come and encounter God's love for us and through faith walking as we get to know who we are more deeply and profoundly. Uh, we grow in our capacity to love neighbor by practicing that practicing that love with our Oasis groups as we uh, love one another and serve one another. And then we practice that as we get engaged in our, in our missional living, as we take on uh, the opportunity to, uh, as a community uh, to live on mission with Jesus. And then leading change, uh, the two things that we connect with that uh, aspect of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus is our triad series. Just out of curiosity, how many people here have done one of the triad books? Anybody? Yeah. So that's fantastic. Uh, there's a huge swath of people who have done at least one of the triad books. And because I'm an optimist, what that means is there's also a huge swath of people that could still do a triad book. And there are three more books to do. The whole triad series is all about saying, how do I shatter the bondages? How do I grow in my identity uh, as a disciple of Jesus? How do I grow in my uh, understanding of what Jesus has done for me so that I am set free from those bondages, free to not lead as a dictator or a tyrant, but free to be a person who leads as a servant? Uh, deepen your relationship with Jesus who ransomed you. And the Triad series is a work that does that. And then uh, developing leaders. And I started making a list of all of the different ways that we talk about developing servant leaders here. Uh, we could talk about things like Faith Walking 201, and, uh, 202, and 301. We could talk about the Women's Leadership Collaborative. Uh, we could talk about elders and deacons who pray together and study together and learn together. Uh, 
And we could talk about the ways that we come alongside people as mentors in all sorts of different relationships. Uh, so there's a, there's a whole list of things that we could talk about. Uh, and sometimes it's better just to see what it looks like. And when I think of people who are servant leaders, um, it's always in the short list of people that come to my, my mind. Uh, Susan Marsh is on that list. Uh, Susan uh, is an incredible servant leader, an incredible heart uh, for the, the work that she does, leading uh, young lives, a ministry uh, with um, teen moms. And uh, through Susan, many, many of us have had the opportunity to step into places of servanthood, uh, serving the needs of those young moms. And so uh, we want to end today with a video uh, where you get to just hear Susan uh, talk about uh, the work that she's doing. And as you hear what she's saying, also listen for her heart and think about uh, the ways that she exemplifies the servant leadership that Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 10.